Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Elisa Suave about her contemporary novel, Ginger and Me. Elisa is a Scottish writer who won the inaugural Prima Donna Prize in 2019. In this episode, we discuss the importance of editors and why Elisa thinks they're the unsung heroes of the process. Giving voice and agency to characters who are working class girls and why you should always aim high and enter competitions even if you don't feel you have the confidence. But first, here's Elisa with an excerpt from Ginger and Me. I showed Sandy my new tablet the following Wednesday. She was impressed and asked me if I'd bought it on interest free. How do you mean? I said. Well, did you take out a payment plan at the shop? I had you saved up for it for a while. I thought about it for a moment, then said I'd saved up for it, since I knew what that meant. That's great, Wendy. But you know, maybe now you're back at work, you should think about using some of your wages to brighten the place up a bit. She gestured round the room with her hand, taking in the worn carpet and the fireplace which was leaning against the wall but wasn't attached to it. I suppose the house was a bit dingy, but it's hard to care what your house looks like when you're the only one that sees it. She must have been worried she'd offended me, because she said quickly, But little steps, Wendy, that's what we're all about. I'm so glad the writing group is working out for you. It seems to have really sparked your interest. You definitely seem brighter. I nodded, but to be honest, even though I'd only been going for a few weeks, I was beginning to wonder if I hadn't already outgrown the group. Our writing just seems so amateurish most of the time, compared to mine and Diane's. At the last meeting, Joseph had written a scene featuring a woman with a brain tumour. I know better than most that isn't a reason for comedy, but still, I think most stories can benefit from a degree of humour. When Henry finally let me give feedback, I said, Joseph, I know she's got a brain tumour, but the way you've written it, all the reader can see is her lying in some flea-ridden camp bed in the old royal, gaga, peeing her pants, with her worst fears gathered together by her side. I can't think of anyone who'd want to read that, can you? I looked round the rest of the group, but they were all busy with their glasses or fixing their shoes and stuff. Joseph pulled a few strands from his man bun and gave me one of his looks. What would you suggest, Wendy? That's how he said my name, as though I had four E's in the middle rather than just one. Can I suggest you watch some films by the Coens? They're two brothers from America who... Yes, I do know who the Cohen brothers are. He slid a look to Henry, who smiled and raised his left eyebrow at Joseph to show him exactly what he thought of my comments. I carried on anyway. Right, well, you should think about the way they write about sad things and bad stuff. Really, the way they write about death is brilliant, but funny too. There's a scene where Walter and the dude are trying to scatter Donnie's ashes, but they keep blowing back in the wind, right into their faces. I couldn't stop laughing, so I finished the movie feeling happy, even though one of the best characters had died, you see? You should try something along those lines, I think. I sat back, exhausted at having said so much, but Joseph looked at me and said, Thanks for the information, Wendy. So I was hopefully taking my advice on board. Hi, Elisa. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, Ginger and Me. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. So can you start by telling us what Ginger and Me is about? Yeah, so Ginger and Me is the story of the friendship between two young girls. Wendy, who's 19, she's a bus driver and an aspiring writer, and Ginger, who's 15. At the start of the novel, Wendy's just lost her mother, so she finds herself with no, nobody in the world really and her support worker says to her um, 
you know, you need, you need to go out to the world and make connections. That's the phrase she always uses. We all need to make connections. So Wendy does this and, and she's quite successful. Um, she joins a writer's group. Um, she meets lots of people on her bus, the regulars on her bus. Um, but most importantly, she meets Ginger, who just appears on her bus one day. And I think certainly initially, the friendship between the two of them is, is, is really good. It's good for both of them. We find out uh, as the novel progresses, that actually, there's lots of darkness underlying those good times. It's partly a coming of age novel. So we see Wendy and Ginger do all the things that best friends do. Um, Ginger is Wendy's first ever best friend. So it's all, all new to her. Uh, so they're putting on makeup, they're going for days out, going for nights out. It's also partly a mystery. So when the novel opens, Wendy's in prison. And, uh, you know, you're immediately thinking, well, what, you know, what's happened? Why, why is she here? And there's lots of mystery as well surrounding Ginger's home life, which, you know, becomes increasingly chaotic as the, as the novel uh, progresses. I wanted to ask you actually about that opening chapter because... I mean, I've done it with my novel with, in having a prologue is that that's almost that great hook for a reader that you plant them somewhere and they're, they're forever questioning, well, what's this and why is it happening? And you've done that with putting Wendy in prison from from chap, from page one and you're forever reading to try and find out why why she's in that in that state. But was that always the starting chapter or was that something that you later thought, OK, this is going to be how I entice my reader to carry on right reading well I, I so want to say yes to that <laughs> uh, um but you know look I'm a I'm a debut author I'm, I'm not gonna lie and say you know I've got years of experience of you know how to structure a novel and and and, and make it as you say enticing for the reader so I'm just going to be absolutely honest and say that um, my editor suggested that we start off in prison and I want to be honest because I, I feel like you know, editors don't always get the recognition that they deserve. Um, mm -hmm. In my case, um, I, I ended up having two editors, actually, Katie Seaman, who was the, the lead editor, and uh, Becky Jameson, who was the assistant. And um, Katie suggested that we start the novel off in prison for the reasons that you suggest. Um, and <laughs> keeping with being very honest, when she said that to me, I thought, are you kidding? <laughs> that is never going to work. But, you know, she's the editor, I'm the newbie. I thought, mm. right, okay, I'll try it. And as soon as I, I moved that chapter to the beginning, I just thought that that really works. That is so much better um, structurally. Mm. And I do do think that, like, both of the editors came up with so many great ideas and suggestions, uh, you know, around the structure of the novel. You know, so I, I want to give them all the, the credit that they're due. And I think maybe... You know, it's something that as debut authors, authors, we maybe don't talk about enough. We don't ad admit maybe. And it was certainly something that I, I worried about a wee bit. And one of the things that Katie said to me, which really made me feel a lot better about the whole process was, you know, editors can play about with the structure of your novel, you know, from, from now until publication. They can suggest all sorts of amendments, taking things out, putting things in. But what, what they cannot do is provide the voice. Mm. The voice of the novel is yours. And that made me feel much better. You know, it made me sort of realise, right, I, I'm a debut author. I'm going to take all the help that I can get to make this novel the best that it can be. But at the end of the day, the story is mine. The characters are mine. The ideas are mine. It is my novel. Um, so I... I I 
you know, want to say to people who start off as, uh, you know, are starting off in writing, don't don't feel um, that you shouldn't accept help. It's all part mm-hmm. of the process. And I, I, I do feel that the editorial process, as well as improving uh, Ginger and me, I do feel it has also taught me an awful lot about writing, um, how to how to improve the way that I can tell a story, and I, I really hope. I mean, the proof will be in the pudding, of course. But I really hope that as I write my my second novel, um, I'll be able to draw on all these things that the editors have taught me this time round. Yeah, I think you're right. I think people get nervous about working with someone, working with an editor or an agent. They worry that they're going to change too much of it or they're going to be forced into changing things. But um, I don't think that's the case at all. I think actually their input is so valuable and it's so nice to have someone to bounce off ideas with. And have. Definitely. Like, I don't know how you found I find it so surreal having conversations with my editor about my characters as if they were real people <laughs> and going, but would they react in this way? Oh, I'm not sure about that. And you have these, these really in-depth conversations then part of your brain's going it's not real I made it up (laughs) (laughs) that's that's true and also I think until you actually become part of the process it's quite difficult to appreciate well certainly for me it was difficult to appreciate the difference between a a structural or developmental I Mm. and somebody who's going to come in and pick up you know tiny mistakes later on in the process And, and you know I think and I find this about every single person's involvement in my novel. Every person has a different skill set to bring. So I, I'm I'm the writer. I'm bringing my skills, such as they are, um, as a writer. That's great, but I still need to take on board the, the editor's skills as an editor, which are totally different to my mm-hmm. skills as a writer. I just think you have to accept that. Otherwise, your novel is not going to be as good as it could be. I mean, I, I think it's funny when people, you know, you know, are not are not happy with their agent or or not their agent, their editor, or, or say, you know, oh, they want me to change this, they want me to change that. I sort of see my editor as a sort of my my angel, my angel <laughs> who comes in and says, "Let's do this. We could do this. Mm. Let's try this." <laughs> and and like you say, just having somebody that is just as um, invested in your characters as you are. That, that's fantastic after, mm. you know, being the only person at your keyboard for so long. Absolutely, yeah. And I, and I think often, even if we don't want to admit it, they're usually right. I know when I got my first, um, like, editor's letter and I had to, well, I didn't have to do anything, but, um, you know, there's no, there's nothing in the contract that says you have to follow your editor's every word, but they obviously make suggestions. And I remember my editor wanted me to make this huge structural change which meant basically re well restructuring the whole book and I didn't want to do it but only because I thought it was hard work and I knew (laughs) deep down I knew it was the right thing to do Uh and I I kept trying to think up ways where I thought no they're wrong and I'm not going to do it and then I thought do you know why I'm so defensive it's because I know that they're 100% right and it will be so much better and I think I think there's a lot of the, the whole kind of cliche of kill your darlings but I think there's a whole part of the writing process that you don't want to let go of you don't want to let go of it and you don't want to change things but often you know deep down that it's the right thing to do uh-huh and I think when an editor makes um a suggestion and you do it and it works it gives you a lot more trust in later suggestions mm. um and, and certainly for me um my editor uh 
neither of the editors at any point suggested anything that would make me like my characters less or make them less of my characters. They tended more to ask things like, well, you know, what, what would the motivation be for doing this? Or, 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 or why, why would she react in this way? And I think that is so useful in making you really think about, well, why, why does she act in that way? She, actually, she probably wouldn't. So we'll take yeah. that out. Uh, and I think the more, um, I just think it's such an important relationship. And if you have a good relationship with your editor and you're able to trust them in that way, I just think you can produce much better work together. Mm. So tell us then, when did Ginger and me first start? Because I get the impression from you, it's a very character-driven novel and it's the friendship is so central. So did it start with this friendship or did it start somewhere else? You know, when I when you first mentioned it, you might ask me that question along those lines, I thought, you know, that's really something that only another writer would ask a writer, <laughs> you know, to question where, how did the story evolve? And it's a great question. And I think it's really quite perceptive because actually you're right, it didn't start off with right, okay. friendship being a central theme. Originally, I was I was writing a story about um, somebody who becomes obsessed with a famous person. But as I was writing that, I started to think about, well, what sort of person does become obsessed with someone they don't know? What sort of person, you know, would go on Twitter and if if, if somebody likes their tweet, immediately think, oh, that's us, you know, we're, we're best Your friends, best pal, we've, got, yeah. we've got this relationship, you know? And I think it's, in order to be that kind of person, I think you would have to have, as Wendy has, no sort of community, no friendship around her, nobody saying, oh, you know, hang on, Wendy, you know, just because she's liked your tweet, that doesn't make you best friends. So the themes of the novel then sort of changed and became more about, um, you know, what, what, what does it mean to be part of a community? What does it mean to have friends? And how, how can we, how can it happen that you don't have that? Particularly if you're somebody like Wendy, who is slightly different to everybody else. And I think that those are very universal themes. I think if if if, if we're being honest, um, most of us have had periods in our lives where we haven't maybe had as many friends as we would like to have. And, you know, I mean, I, I, certainly that's been the case for me. You know, when I went to university, I went very young. Um, and I think that was part, part of the reason why. But certainly there was a period of, well, I, I would say really my whole university life um, I really didn't have any friends. I didn't really feel as if I fitted in with the, the you know, the university um, life. Um, and, you know, that, that as I've come to realise now, that is not a personal failing on my part. People can have no friends, no sense of community for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I think the important thing is what, what you do about that. And Wendy, to her credit, um, does try and find a sense of community. In fact, in fact, she, you know, she does find a sense of community. She, you know, she becomes friends with the women on the bus. She she makes friends at a writers group. She becomes friends with with Ginger, and I I really applaud her for going out and doing and doing that sort of thing. Um, and and I think you know we should maybe talk more about what what is it to not fit in with everybody else. What what does it mean not to belong and and how can people who do belong mm. do more to sort of say well you know we, we are a community be part of our community I think Ginger's the first person that's really invited Wendy in as a true friend because her writing group are really snobby around her and quite 
quite mean at times. So what do you think it's about their friendship, about their connection that that makes them such firm friends? I mean, I think partly it's because neither of them has a sense of community. Neither of them has someone else. And so for, for each other, they are a port in the storm. So it's, it's partly that. I think it's partly as well, um, Ginger, Ginger needs someone to look after her. Wendy is almost looking for someone to look after. So there's a real sort of match, I guess, in, the, in their circumstances. I, I mean, ideally, ideally what you want in a friendship is, is reciprocal care, isn't it? Mm. You want somebody to care for you and you, you care for them. And I think, I think there is a bit of that going on with Wendy and Ginger. Um, you know, Ginger teaches Wendy, I guess, how to, how to be, be in the community, you know, how to, how to go out, how to make the most of yourself. Um, you know, physically, looks-wise. And Wendy definitely cares about what's happening in Ginger's life. So I think there is a sort of a reciprocity of care there. It's it's just a pity that it, that it doesn't end well. Mm. And then tell us a little bit about Wendy, because she's got quite a unique and possibly naive perspective on the world. And it's suggested at one point in the novel that she might be on the autistic spectrum, but her mother is very against kind of going down that route of diagnosis. So where did her character come from? Where where did your inspiration for Wendy arrive? And how was it to write her voice? Because obviously the novel was told from her point of view and we are seeing the world through her eyes. So how did you how did you find her voice? Did it come quite easily to you? You know, I find this such a difficult question. And of course, it's a question that everybody asks me because it is, as you say, a voice-driven, character-driven novel. I think the first thing to say is, and um, you know, people don't seem to really like this answer, but nevertheless, it's true. Um, Wendy's completely fictional. Um, she's not a young me. Um, she's not someone that I've met and thought, oh, you know, you're you're fantastic. I must put you in a in a book. But because I've been asked this question, I have sort of really thought about the the, the genesis of the character, and I think she sort of, I think I first sort of start to get the idea for Wendy when I used to go to this toddlers group in View Park. So View Park is the area where um, Ginger's from. And I just remember when I was at these toddlers groups, at at the meetings, just really laughing, laughing all the time at these young mums and the the stories they told me, the things they got up to. Um, And I thought, you know, you just don't hear from these voices. You don't hear from young working class women like them, but mm-hmm. but why not? They are so funny. The, their, their stories are great. They've got a very um, they've got a unique perspective on on their life. Uh, often extremely optimistic in the face of hardship. Why why do we not hear more from these women? So I think that's where she came from originally. Um, I wrote her in the first person um, deliberately because. I think with a character like Wendy, like you say, um, she's got a, a different take on things. Uh, a sort of a she sees things differently to the rest of us. She takes everything literally. Um, she can't sort of pick up on social cues the way that you and I might be able to. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to sort of have the reader right in her head, so that they could see what her motivations were, what, what why she does the things she does. Because I think if you were to take a sort of an objective view of the way Wendy acts, you might wonder, well, why why is she acting like that? 
So I, I thought the first person perspective was was important for for Wendy, um, but actually, I, I'm a big fan of the first person narrative generally because I think it's a way of it's almost like you can transfer power to people who would otherwise have no power. Um, so what, what I mean by that is, you know, if you think about how we traditionally tell stories from a third person perspective, often what we're saying is, you know, important people are doing important things. And then this somehow impacts on little people like Wendy and Ginger. I, I wanted to say, to, you know, for Wendy to have the power to say, look, this is my story. This, this, this is how the world impacts me. This is what this is my side. And I think if you do that, it, it, it almost becomes a political act where you are taking power from the, the few and you're giving it to people like young working class girls, for example, you know, who, who don't have the power, who don't have the voice. So Yes, it, it was important for Wendy because she's got a unique perspective. I also thought it was an important thing to do generally. Mm. And I read an interview where you were saying that, you know, Ginger's ambitions in life aren't big things. They're little things like shopping in M&S and things like that. And you really wanted to highlight these women that we maybe don't read about so much or people from smaller towns that aren't living in big cities that don't have these huge big dreams and their goals and motivations in life are just as important so can you talk a little bit about that and why that was so significant for you to write about well it's, it's exactly that I mean if you think about um the novels that we we tend to read about uh, or we tend to read um it tends to be sort of young middle class girls I mean if you think about you know a, a girl Wendy's age it would tend to be a young middle class girl who's going off to university um or perhaps um starting off in a new career which often tends to be publishing uh, or, or something like that in a flat share in London with lots of other middle class girls and uh, you know we, we we see them having romantic uh, entanglements we see them having sort of worries about is this the right career for me now that's fine. I, I like those kind of novels. I, I read a lot of those novels. But I, I think that those ambitions and those lives, we, we read a lot about. We, 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 they're everywhere. What about girls like Wendy and Ginger? What about girls who um, their ambitions are not to go to university? Well, they're just not expected to go to university, never mind what their ambitions are. But they do have ambitions and they do have dreams and they're every bit as important as the middle class girls. And I, I just would like people to acknowledge that they, they have something to offer. Uh, and and why, why should they always be silent? Why, sh why should we always be hearing about people who are born to privilege anyway? Let's, let's hear more from the working class girls. And it is, it is working class girls I'm concerned with because I do think, you, you know, on the one hand, you have the, the middle class girls and then you have working class men generally, you know, in the working class literature, it's, it's from a male perspective. And, you know, I'm again, I'm a big fan of uh, the working class literature. Um, but I do think that the male perspective gives a completely different lens on working class life than the female perspective. So, you know, you, you, get, you get a male protagonist, usually written by a male author, 
um, who's involved often in you know the violence and um, drinking, fighting, all you know. I guess a sort of a a pretty grim uh, picture of working class poverty generally. I wanted to say, well, what would happen if you flipped that and put the women centre stage? So not not the strong mummy, not the um, or strong mammy as we would say in Scotland, not the the, the sort of um, loyal girlfriend. What about if the women were centre stage? A completely different perspective on working class life. Because working class women are, are probably going to tell you more about the working class community, what, what it means to be um, in a working class community. And it's much more positive. It's things like, you know, how, how, how neighbours helping each other out, um, less about the drinking and the fighting. And actually, as far as I'm concerned, more about what, what it means realistically to have a working class life. Mm. So... For, for all of those reasons, I wanted my my girls, my working class girls to be driving the story, which I, I just think is, we we don't, I mean, there are there are examples, of course, there are Kirsten Innes' Scabby Queen, um, you know, there are Jenny Fagan, um, but there's not enough. I, I want I want more working class women, writers and characters. Well, I think that's given other people listening, hopefully some inspiration and ambitions that are maybe larger than gingers maybe to write a book but um, hopefully <laughs> people will be inspired by um your efforts there to, to change I, the narrative i would so love that because i think um it's a bit like i mean diane says in the book something along the lines of um diane's the author in the book it, she says something along the lines of um we all need to see ourselves reflected back at us and i i agree with that so i think the more working class literature we have the more we will, the more we will mm-hmm. have. Because if you read it, if you see it out there, you think, oh right, well, so so you can write about people like me from this small town of Uddingston or wherever it may be. You can write about that. Those stories are just as important as Mrs. Um, publishing professional from London. Yeah, definitely. So you've mentioned Diane. I want to touch on Diane because I love that aspect aspect of the story. To have this famous local author and have Wendy be so I guess obsessed by her and a total fan of hers was it kind of fun for you to write that almost like meta version of another author to kind of tweet about all the hot topics in in the literary world and things like that and kind of play with the author fan relationship yeah I mean Diane really was a fun character to write um, I mean, you don't have to scroll through Twitter for very long to see that there are plenty of authors who think the same sort of way as Diane does, you know, sort of, I guess, pretty jaded about the whole industry, who gets published, what gets published. Um, so it was fun to actually be able to, you know, put that in writing, but it's not me. It's Diane that's saying these things. Um, but the sort of meta element that you mentioned, I actually found that quite difficult. So I had to I had to do that for both Wendy and Diane. So we get a wee insight into the kind of things that both of them are writing. For Wendy, I just found that much easier because I just feel like I know her so well. I, I know what she's thinking. I know what she's. I know what kind of mistakes she would make as a writer. Um, so I found that much easier. Diane, you know, I'm I'm trying to put myself in the position of you know a seasoned author who's you know. A totally different end of the spectrum to me, uh, you know, as a as a new as a newcomer, and I did find that difficult. So, I, I, what I tried to do, I tried to sort of 
um, think about who who would Diane's influences be and how would she channel those. And then um, very luckily for me, I decided that she had the same influences as I do. <laughs> <laughs> so she's very much into the sort of the Scottish writers and she she absolutely loves James Kelman as I do. Um, and, and I think the kind of things that she says are the kind of things that would be influenced by a writer, you know, a rebellious um, writer like James Kelman. So that, that made it a wee bit easier for me. Um, but yeah, you're right. It really was good fun to try mm. and think about what, what kind of things would she write? What would she say? And I guess part of your research then was just scrolling Twitter all day. <laughs> Any excuse will do. <laughs> So as we're talking about the writing world, one of the things we have to talk about is your fantastic success and the fact that you managed to grab the attention of the Prima Donna Prize judges because you won their inaugural writing prize in 2019. So tell us about that experience and how that whole prize launched your career. That was just a brilliant experience from start to finish and, and continues to be actually. So I've been writing for maybe... I think maybe four or five years and you know like like everybody had my share of occasional publications but mostly disappointments and rejections because that is the way it is um, so Prima Donna was really my first sort of taste of success. I mean, I could not believe it when I was longlisted. I, I, I genuinely couldn't believe it. I, you know, I was I celebrated. I celebrated being on the longlist because I thought, you know, that doesn't get any better than this. And then a few months later, I found out I'd been shortlisted. So at that point, there was only five writers. So I really, I just felt so happy. I felt that that was validation enough for me, you know, that I'd, I'd reached the top five. And it was just before COVID hit. So the, the, the ceremony was actually just one of the very last events before we couldn't have a ceremony at all. So it was a sort of a very swanky affair at Conway Hall in London. Uh, and I really felt as though I was living the dream, honestly, going down to Conway Hall to this, you know, ceremony. It was hosted by Sandy Toxpig and famous Lemsey Say. I was oh, God, fantastic. Uh, so imagine my absolute uh, joy and gobsmackedness uh, that, you know, I was, I, I won. So from there, uh, so one of the part of the prize is that you win agency representation uh, with Catherine Summerhays of Curtis Brown. Which was great. That was great. But let me tell you, I think the most important part of the prize was the fact that it made me think, right, well, I, that must be quite good then. Mm. My, my writing must be quite good. I'm going to just going to keep going. So that sort of increased confidence, that validation, I think that is the most important part of the prize. But practically speaking, um, Catherine did not hang around. It was about a couple of months later where I then signed the deal with HQ. Uh, so thank, thanks to Prima Donna, that's, you know, what started off my um, lead up to publication. Well, that did move pretty quickly then to, to have the competition win, to sign with an agent, and then a few months later, get your book deals. So that's fantastic. But I like you mentioned, I think prizes are fantastic for giving you that validation, that confidence and thinking, OK, I must be quite good then, because I think sometimes <laughs> it's quite hard to judge, isn't it? You know, you, you, uh -huh. write, you write your work and you think, well, I, I think it's all right. But until you send it out there into the world, you're the only judge of it. So I think a lot of people will be maybe listening to this thinking there's a competition they want to enter or they're, they're thinking about whether it's the Bath Novel Prize or the Bridport Prize or what, whatever it is, but thinking, 
I'm not good enough to enter, but I can't enter. I don't feel like I'm ready yet. So what advice would you give to those people? Well, I, I mean, I understand that uh, um, that view. I, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I, I don't feel that way. I don't know if you want to call it self-confidence, self-belief. Um, I always take the view, um, what is the worst that can happen? All that can happen is that I don't get anywhere in this competition. Why not give it a go? And, you know, I'll give you a laugh. I, told you, I said we'd write for four or five years. The very first story that I ever wrote, right? So first, first story. I thought, this is fabulous. I sent it to Granta. <laughs> because I thought, I thought, do you know what? I'm going to aim high. What is the worst that can happen? And of course, the worst did happen. Uh, Granta did not want to publish my very first ever short story. But so what? So what? Just keep keep applying anyway. And you know, if you don't have that sort of ridiculous level of self belief, uh, you know, and I'm I'm half joking. Of course, I do. I do have uh, enough awareness to know now. Perhaps not when I started writing. <laughs> I have enough awareness to know now that you know you're not you're not going to write a story and send it to Granta immediately. Um, but if you if you are thinking um, along the lines of, um, you know, I'm just I'm just not good enough. Ask yourself this, if not you, then who? Mm. Who, who? Who's going to enter a competition if not you? If you are writing, if you, are, if you think you have something to say, if you've honed the work to the best of your ability, why not you? Why not you? So yeah. I think, you know, shelf any sort of inhibitions within reason. You know, don't do what I did and send your first ever story to Granta. <laughs> within reason. Once you're ready and, you know, accept that the will always be part of you that thinks I'm never ready. Doesn't matter. Shelf it. Send it in. What is the worst that can happen? Mm. That is really good advice. I think a lot of people will benefit from hearing that. And I think, like you say, the worst that you'll hear is no. And I think exactly. it's a good word to get used to because there's a lot of <laughs> no's in publishing. So, you know, start early get those rejections rolling in and you know you, ne you never know you might win and you might get shortlisted and then that is a great thing to be able to say to people I got longlisted I got shortlisted I won this competition I mean there are so many people that enter these competitions so if you even get to longlisted that's 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 great that's, uh -huh. that's a real achievement uh, my, my son said something great to me um years ago when I started um writing um and when I would get a rejection from a literary journal, or whatever, I'd say, oh, God, another rejection. And he would say to me, oh, my, they are going to be sick when you're successful. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to look at it. Not, not um, oh, oh, no, I'm not good enough. More, oh, you're going to be sorry you missed out on me. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard to keep that level of um, self-belief. But I think, mm. I think you have to. You have to keep telling yourself you're good enough. Otherwise, you would just give up. Exactly. And I think it's we've said before, writing is solitary. And until you have feedback from someone, it's so hard to know where you're at, whether you're good or not. But if you enter these things, you might get somewhere. And, and then that's that's a great that's a great thing to have achieved. So I want to talk, Elisa, about your writing routine, whether you're a very disciplined writer, whether you are able to get up at 9am and sit down and work on a plan you're shaking your head at me no one can see this but she's shaking her head seriously <laughs> so tell me I mean do you have a writing routine what what are you like as a writer 
No, I don't have a rating routine. <laughs> Should I admit that? I'm not sure. Um, I, you know, I definitely, I don't believe in this idea that to be a writer, you, you must get to your desk for nine every day and you must write every day and you must write X number of words. Because to me, um, that is just another barrier that some people cannot overcome. You know, people have jobs, people have children. There's all sorts of reasons why you can't get to your desk every day at nine o'clock. And I think this idea that in order to in order to be a writer, you have to do that is quite detrimental to people who, who have these barriers to overcome. Um, so I think the important thing is that once you once you have your idea, once you're once you're oh, and, and by the way, don't sit about and wait for an idea. Uh, you know, you have to you have to accept that um, you know you're not going to just have this brilliant idea one day and then off you go for the next six months and that's you finished. Um, but once you once you know what you're writing, um, what what I do is a, in a very practical way is I try and write a few lines every night in a notebook in bed, um, and as long as I've written a few lines. When I do come to sit at my PC and write, I can immediately start with those few lines. And, you know, I'm not looking at a blank page. And inevitably, those few lines will lead to more. Um, so I think as a sort of a practical measure, don't, don't come hoping that the inspiration will strike when you get here. You know, that, that probably won't happen. Um, in terms of being disciplined, I, I don't think I'm disciplined, but I do think I have acknowledged and accepted that if you have a great idea and you don't sit down to write it it will only ever be a good idea so you know there's so many people will say to, I'm sure they say it to you too um I've got a great idea for a book and you say well how much have you written and they'll say well I haven't actually written anything you know and you really want to say well you know if you don't actually sit down and write all it will ever be is a good idea. It, it will never go from being a good idea in your head to being a book. So if you're if you're serious about um, your ambition, if you're serious that you want to write a novel, you have to write. Mm, yeah, you've got to write. You've got to do the work. And, and you know, I'm just as bad as any as anyone to have days where I don't feel like doing it. But I love your idea of writing a couple of lines before bed so that the next day you're not starting with a blank page because. Um, I'm the person that has that fear of the blank page and I much prefer the editing to the writing so um do you yeah yeah I'm, I'm a weirdo like that I like I much prefer the editing um even if it's painful at times I think it's at least you've got something to start with I think that's starting for me is the hardest part but I know other people feel completely differently but I wondered whether you could tell us if there's anything you feel that you know now that you're a debut that you're a published author that you wish you'd known way way back before you started writing or before you signed your with your agent what do you wish that you'd known at the start I think <clears throat> I wish I'd known what a process what a long involved process it is to write a book I mean I think certainly myself as a reader when I in the past if I've picked up a book there's a name on the front cover. I assume they've sat down to write that book. It's maybe taken them a few weeks, I don't know. Uh, you know, and then a book has a book has appeared. Um, when I um, signed my publishing deal with HQ, um, it was during COVID. Uh, and I remember we had a sort of a Zoom celebration. And uh, Lisa Milton, who's the executive publisher at HQ, said something along the lines of, well, congratulations, you know, and if only you knew it, the hard work's just about 
to begin. And I was thinking at the time, huh, well, I think you'll find I've written the novel already. So, uh, you know, I've given you it and off we pop. <laughs> but that I realised as soon as, you know, she was absolutely right. As soon as the novel went into the production process, there's so many different people involved, so many different skills. You, you're, you're part of that. You're, I guess you're the driver of it, you know, as a writer. But it's, it's so much more work than you might anticipate when you, when you start. So actually, maybe it's just as well that I didn't know instead of saying <laughs> something which I didn't know because maybe I would have thought twice. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally worth it. It's absolutely worth it to see your, your book, Baby Being Born. But don't underestimate how much work it is because it, it's a lot of work. So finally, I'm assuming that work is underway for a new book. Are you able to tell us if you're working on anything new or give us a little tease about what's next? Yeah, well, I am working on a new novel. Uh, I've just finished the very first draft, which, you know, as you and I know, is the first draft of 169 million. <laughs> um, but it's about four middle-aged women. There's another demographic that I think is not heard from enough. Uh, four middle-aged uh, women who were all at school together and they hit their 40s and... They, they look around and they think, no, life is, is maybe not as great as we, we hoped it might be when we were at school. So they embark upon this graffiti campaign in their local town where they, they scrawl um, anti-patriarchy um, slogans all over the buildings in an attempt to raise awareness of, of the issues that, that, that they're um, worried about. So it's things like, uh, you know, lack of equal pay, sexual harassment in the workplace, um, this sort of cloak of invisibility that women don as soon as they're you know they hit their mid forties. Um, so it's I guess it's like Ginger and Me in the sense that it's dealing with some very complex dark themes, but with a with a lot of humour thrown in to sort of uh, mix it up. Well, that sounds great, Elisa. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today to discuss Ginger and Me. Thanks so much for having me. I've loved chatting to you. That was Elisa Suave talking about her contemporary novel, Ginger and Me, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.